الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد رضي الله عنهم وردوا عنه وقال تعالى ومنهم من قضى نحبه ومنهم من ينتظر وما بدلوا تبديلا My dear respected friends I am really excited today to speak about Talha ibn Ubaidillah Although we've heard about him so much that he's one of the ten that have been given the glad tidings of paradise. I never really had enough time to go and do some more research, more in-depth research about, about him in various sources. So today I'm really excited to be covering this great individual and you'll see why. Uh, just to clarify before we continue the famous hadith which I believe is related by Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu and others, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa mentioned these ten names. Abu Bakr fil Jannah, Umar fil Jannah, Uthman fil Jannah, Ali fil Jannah. Then, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, Abdurrahman ibn Awf, Zubair ibn al-Awam, Talha ibn Ubaidillah, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, and who's the last one? Sa'id ibn Zayd, jazakallahu khair. So those are ten. Sa'id ibn Zayd is, we'll be covering him inshallah in one of the subsequent ones. But uh, they're amazing. Now the, these are not the only people that the Prophet sallallahu mentioned that they will be in paradise. There are several others that the Prophet sallallahu mentioned that they will go to paradise. There was one occasion where the Prophet sallallahu mentioned something, a virtue. And uh, one of the sahaba said, can you pay to Allah that Allah make me one of them? Ukkasha. So the Prophet said, yes, you're one of them. And then another person said, can you pray that Allah make me one of them as well? He said, no, sabaqaka biha ukkasha. Ukkasha, has, um, he's beat you to it. Now the door has to be closed again. So there's numerous people like this, but the significance of these people, these ten, is that the Prophet mentioned them all in one sitting. That's what makes these significant. That's why they get that high spot. So just remember that. They're not the only ones that have been guaranteed. In fact, our belief is inshallah, all the sahaba will be in Jannah. Because Allah says in, in the Quran that He's satisfied with them. But being given a guarantee in this world that you are from the people of paradise, that's just amazing. It's something nice to know. So Talha ibn Ubaidillah al-Qurashi is obviously from the Qurashi and he's from the Banu Taym. Taim, he's a, he's a Taimi. So he's actually related to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu They're both from the same clan, from the same sub-clan. Now, look at this, see where he meets up with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa I'm going to read his lineage. Talha ibn Ubaidillah. So his dad's name is Ubaidullah. Ibn Uthman, ibn Amr, ibn Ka'b, ibn Sa'ad, ibn Taim. Then, ibn Murrah. That's where it links up with the Prophet ﷺ. So in the Prophet ﷺ's lineage, Murrah appears there. That's where they connect. 
From Murrah they diverge actually. So Taim is one brother. So Taim is one son of uh, Murrah. So that's where that, why these people are called the, the Taimis. Abu Bakr radiallahu and then it carries on. Murrah ibn Ka'b ibn Luwa ibn Ghalib etc. His mother was a Sa'ba bintu Abdullah. She's uh, actually the sister of another great Sahabi whose name was Ala ibn al-Hadrami. So his, that's his uncle. Ala ibn al-Hadrami is his uncle. Not only is he from the ten that were given the glad tidings of paradise, but he's also from As-Sabiqoon al-Awwaloon min al-Muhajirina wal-Ansar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the pioneers, those who are at the forefront, who took on the deen right at the beginning, who never questioned anything, who, who believed the Prophet sallallahu some of the earliest converts we're speaking about. And then of course, we've dealt with this before, he is one of the six committee. He is a member of that six committee that Umar radiallahu anhu made to decide among them who will be the Khalifa after him. And what Umar radiallahu anhu said about these six people, that these are the same people who, when the Prophet passed away, he was satisfied with these people. Like clearly he was known to be satisfied with these people when he passed away. And then the Prophet ﷺ once mentioned that about Talha ibn Ubaidillah that he's a shaheed walking on the ground. Walking on the earth, he's a shaheed. In fact, in one hadith of Sunan al-Tirmidhi, the Prophet ﷺ said, مَنْ سَرَّهُ أَنْ يَنْظُرَ إِلَىٰ شَهِيدٍ يَمْشِي عَلَىٰ وَجْهِ الْأَرْضِ فَلْيَنْظُرْ إِلَىٰ طَلْحَ ibn Ubaidillah. Anybody who wants to... anybody who it makes happy to see as a shaheed still walking on the earth, on the face of this earth, he should look at Talha ibn Ubaidillah. So these are all things that were said during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ when Talha radiallahu anhu is alive. And you can imagine what kind of happiness, satisfaction and what kind of inspiration. These were people who just because they were told something good, it didn't mess them up. It didn't make them feel, okay, it's all done and dusted now. Now I can do whatever I want. I've got a guarantee. Uthman who was told after some of the spending he did during some of the, the battles, also when he brought the, the well for the people of Medina Munawwara, the Prophet said, nothing will harm you after this. There's nothing that can harm you after this. You can do whatever you want. That did not lead them except closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what you call belief based on real love. When it's artificial, when you're just looking for an award, an accolade, some kind of gift or some kind of bounty, then once you got the bounty, khalas, finished, then you stop doing it. And unfortunately, that's not what these people were, you know, uh, that's, these people were greater than that. So now to start off with giving us some understanding of his life and some of the prominent features, some of the prominent incidents, inshallah, so we can benefit from them. We, we basically, the way we benefit from these is we see how these people acted under different tensions under different situations that's really the best that that's really what we learn from these people otherwise mashallah they're done they're sorted they've gone right they're 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 enjoying themselves somewhere right people in slang would say something else but you know they're enjoying themselves somewhere they're having a good time basically how do we benefit from them that one of the ways that i benefit is that we look at what they did under different situations and that gives us an understanding of how 
what Allah demands from us under different situations and we can learn if we can't learn from everything we can learn from a bit of it something will resonate with us we can relate to some of it so he was born in Makkah Mukarramah before the migration before the migration about 28 years before the migration so obviously he's younger than the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam migrated when he was how old? he was 53 Right? So 13 years after Makkah, he got prophethood at the age of 40. At 53, he stayed, uh, that's when he went to Medina Munawwara. So he was born just 28 years or 26 years before that. Because there's a difference of opinion as to when exactly he died. Some say he died in, uh, when, uh, he died in 26 uh, Hijri or 24th Hijri. Whatever the case be. The way he, he's actually been described. Now, I don't know, this wouldn't be right anyway. Right? But I can just imagine somebody, uh, you get those people that the police use that uh, take profiles of people and then they scribble out a whole visual profile of somebody, right? based on the descriptions that people provide them. Right? So do this in your mind. Because the way he's been described is, كَانَ رَجُلًا Adam. He was of wheatish complexion. He had a lot of hair and... Neither, I mean, he's like the Prophet Sallallahu neither was he too stout and neither was he too thin. He was of moderate stature, very hasanul wajhi. MashaAllah, resplendent face, very handsome. When he walked, he walked fast. And Musa ibn Talha, his son, he quotes a lot from him, he describes, he, he's transmitted quite a bit from him. He says, my father was of whitish complexion with a leaning towards a slight reddish complexion, white with a slight reddish tinge. He was of medium stature. He, was, uh, he had a wide chest and he had broad shoulder blades. His feet were fully fleshed and when he turned towards somebody, he generally turned fully. He wasn't one of those who looked with people from the corner of his eyes. He turned fully around to address people. Abu Nadr al-Abdi says, Talha ibn Ubaidullah came to visit us once. And he was from one of the most handsome youth. He was of the most handsome youth. And he came to us and he still remembers the, the clothing. He had clothing that were tinged with yellow, that was slightly yellow. He became Muslim, as I said, very early on. In fact, it says that he was one of the first of the eight. So when he became Muslim... There were only eight believers. There were only eight believers. Abu Bakr and Khadija radiallahu anhu, and then you'll, you'll see these other five. Ali radiallahu anhu, these other five. They were the five that were sabiquna fil Islam, pioneers. And everything that he's done, all of his accomplishments, they're all in the balance of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Because he is one of the ones that Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu brought to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ibn Ishaq says, Ibn Ishaq is a biographer of the Prophet ﷺ, a famous one. He says that Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu, it's on his hands that the following people, and they're all the great ones, we've already discussed quite a few of them already. Zubair ibn al-Awam, which we discussed last time, who we discussed, Uthman ibn Affan, Talha ibn Ubaidillah, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, Abdurrahman ibn Auf. All of these people, they're all Ashara Mubashara as well. It's like if you're with Abu Bakr, you're safe. And if you're not with Abu Bakr then you're in trouble. Big trouble. Right. 
I really feel sorry for those people who have shaitan has misled them to hate Abu Bakr. Then it's like, how can you? What kind of irrational understanding? Seriously, I, I really can't understand. It's like they've just bought into a narrative that just ajib. How can you hate Abu Bakr and Omar? It's just, it's just so irrational. It's such an irrational belief. And look at this. The five people... Zubair, Uthman, Talha, Sa'ad and Abdurrahman, five people become Muslim through him and they also get Ashara Mubashara. And they prove themselves. These were not people who were just given it because Abu Bakr put in a good word. Nothing like that. You'll actually see what happened. You've already heard about, we've actually covered all of them except Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu anhu. Anyway, Ibrahim ibn Muhammad ibn Talha, this is one of his grandsons, he talks about uh, how his grandfather became a Muslim. It's quite an interesting story. You'll actually, I've, I've mentioned this several times before that he was one of the millionaires among the top ten. So you had four millionaires among the top ten. Right? Among these ten, Ashara Mubashara, four of them were at least millionaires, if not billionaires. Right? Abdurrahman ibn Auf, Uthman radiallahu an. You heard about what Zubair radiallahu an who left at his death. Right? And Talha ibn Ubaidillah. So it looks like he was a businessman from before because his grandson says that my grandfather Talha ibn Ubaidullah once was in the great souk and bazaar of Busra. Busra is south of Damascus. That's the area. It's called Busra. That's where Imam Nawi is buried in that area, south of Damascus in Sham. So he says he was there and in that area he came across this hermit who was in one of his uh, retreats. And uh, the hermit was asking, because it was the annual bazaar there, the annual fair, annual exhibition, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, annual trade show, however you want to call it. That was like the old precursor to those things. So he said, can you ask the people who've come for this celebration or for this gathering, is there anybody, anybody there from Ahlul Haram, from the people of Makkah? So they asked, and Talha said, yes, I'm, I'm of the people of Makkah. So then this hermit, this rahib, he asked him, Hal Zahara Ahmed Badu? Has Ahmed uh, appeared yet? Like, who's Ahmed? He said. He said, Who's Ahmed? He says, Ibn Abdullah, Ibn Abdul Muttalib, the son of Abdullah, son of Abdul Muttalib. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his name was Ahmed as well, as you know. So, what the hermit then said is that this is the month in which he's going to appear. He's the last and the final prophet. And He's going to appear in the haram. Then he's going to migrate to a place of palm trees, an oasis of palm trees. And a place which has salty land. And uh, he mentioned a few other descriptions. فَإِيَّاكَ أَن تُسْبَقْ Beware that you don't get beaten to him. Which means that beware that you're not the first one to go and that others beat you to, uh, you know, to embrace him. So... Talha said immediately something you know, came in my heart that yes, I'm, if it basically it made an impact on my heart. So I quickly left, quickly I returned. And when I got to Makkah, I said, min hadath, Has anything happened here? Is there any news? What's going on? I said, yeah, there's a Muhammad ibn, Amil, uh, uh, Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the one everybody knew, Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Ameen. He was known as the trustworthy one from before, so everybody knew him like that. Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Ameen. He's just been given, you know, he claims he's been given some news. And Ibn Abi Kuhafa, the son of Abu Kuhafa, has also followed him. That's a big deal because 
Ibn Abi Quhafa, Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an, was well respected. He, he was respected. He was, he was well known and respected. So, so I quickly left that gathering and I went to Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an. And uh, I said, have you, followed that? have you followed this man? He said, yeah, you go to him as well. And uh, you should follow him as well because he is, clear, he is inviting to the truth. So then Talha told him, radiallahu an, told him about what he'd, what he'd heard from the hermit. That this is what he told me and that's why I've rushed back. So Abu Bakr then went out, came out with Abu Talha. They went to see the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And thus, that's when Talha radiallahu an became a Muslim. And then he also told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam what this hermit had told them. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam obviously was very happy about that because it confirmed it. Because remember, he's, he's fearing resistance. Then when Abu Bakr radiallahu has now become Muslim, so has Talha ibn Ubaidillah. Unfortunately, one of the uncles of their tribe, one of the, he was actually known as the Lion of the Banu Taym one of the people of that tribe, he wasn't happy with them becoming Muslim in the beginning. So he used to tie them up. He, he, he used to tie them up and rest of the tribe didn't help them at that time. He was actually known as the Asadu Quraysh. But then anyway, after that, it looks like they, 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 they were fine. They, didn't, they were not persecuted afterwards. That's why Talha radiallahu anh never uh, did not. Talha was not one of those who actually migrated to Habsha and Abyssinia. And the reason why he didn't have to go um, to Abyssinia is because he, uh, after that he was well respected and his tribe was well respected and there was nobody that would actually trouble their tribe because they had a very powerful tribe. That's why Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, if you remember his story, that he used to want to read Quran and so on and uh, th- then he had left himself because he was just tired of the people and then he was, taken, he was, he, he was sent back by uh, this, uh, the, the Sayyid al-Qara, right? And then he came back. Anyway, when he became a Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ linked him up with Zubayr ibn al-Awam. Talha was linked up with Zubayr ibn al-Awam. So that's why you always hear Talha Zubayr, Talha Zubayr. They were very close friends. And that's why they're the two that will do a lot of things together in the future as well. Because the Prophet ﷺ linked them up in, in the Maybe they were friends before, Allahu A'lam. But this was in Makkah. This Mu'akhat was not the Medinan brotherhood. This is from Makkah, this one. So he wasn't persecuted. He didn't have that much persecution or anything like that. So they didn't have to go to Habasha. <coughs> However, then Medina Munawwara opens up. So he is one of them who goes to Medina Munawwara. He goes to Medina Munawwara, but look at the story here. As I said, he was a trader. He got to Medina Munawwara after the Prophet ﷺ. A lot of people, as you know, they'd actually got to Medina Munawwara. They'd migrated before the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ actually migrated later. Lots of people went before. He went after the Prophet ﷺ. And what happened is, he was actually on a trade mission to Sham. Like it looks like he liked to go there. So he was on one of those trade journeys to Sham, to Syria. On his way back, remember Sham is in the north. The Prophet ﷺ had just left Makkah Mukarramah for his migration. He's just abandoned Makkah or left Makkah, departed. Remember, he stayed in the cave for three days. Then he took the sea route uh, towards Medina Munawwara. On that route, you got Talha ibn Ubaidullah coming down with his goods, with his trade caravan. They met the Prophet ﷺ there. And this is a famous story that when he met the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he gave them, 
He put onto them, he garbed them in some of the clothing of Sham that he'd come back with. This is very significantly known about him that he did this. And then after that, he mentioned, to, uh, he, um, he came to Makkah Mukarramah. He then took the family of, remember Abu Bakr Siddiqui left with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he left his family behind. So he was then the one that took the family of Abu Bakr and along with his own family, and then he migrated after them. He brought their family to Medina Munawwara. So you could tell that they were, they were family, they were, they were the same tribe, so that's probably why he took them. Now when he gets to Makkah, uh, when he gets to Medina Munawwara, he, is, he goes and stays initially with As'ad ibn Zurara. And then the Prophet ﷺ made him, linked him up, paired him in that Medinan brotherhood that the Prophet ﷺ did. He linked him up with Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu Now you know Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu is the one whose house the Prophet ﷺ stayed with. So he links him up with him. That is the most well-known opinion that that's who he linked him up with. There are other opinions that maybe he was linked up with Ka'ab ibn Malik. Another great Sahabi radiallahu an, or Sa'id ibn Zayd, or Ubay ibn Ka'ab. Whatever the case is, it seems like it was with Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu an. And in fact, it says the additional thing is that the Prophet sallallahu was the one who actually chose for him the place he's going to stay, wherever his residence is going to be. That's something uh, additionally that you learn, learn in this case, that, that his house is going to be here. Now what happens is that Talha ibn Ubaidullah is a very faithful believer. He doesn't leave the side of the Prophet ﷺ and you'll see that soon. That's why he was in all of the battles. Throughout the life of the Prophet ﷺ, every single battle he took part in, there was only a bit of a... He missed the battle of Badr. And that was also for good reason. What happened during the battle of Badr, as you know, is that the battle of Badr took place kind of a bit of a sudden. It was a bit of a surprise. What had happened is there was a caravan of the Quraysh, Abu Sufyan, etc., which, which we found out about. So the Prophet ﷺ, he sent Waqidi, who is the great biographer, who is a great historian, he relates that the Prophet ﷺ had sent Sa'id ibn Zayd with Talha ibn Ubaidullah to find out where this caravan of the Quraysh was as it was coming back from Sham. They went out, and when they got to a place called Hawra, they stayed there to wait until the caravan would pass, because that was probably on the main route. However, what happened is, before they could return, the Prophet ﷺ learned from elsewhere that the caravan was going to come by in Badr or whatever. Anyway, these people, these two, they came back to inform the Prophet ﷺ. When they got to Medina Munawwara, they discovered that the Prophet was already left with, a, with, a, with an army, with a small army. Three, what is it, 313 people or so, right? So they quickly then rushed towards Badr so that they could catch up. And when they got there, they actually saw that the Prophet ﷺ, it was all done and dusted and they were coming back. Because it happened very quickly, this one. So obviously they're, they're not, they, they feel left out. So Musa ibn Uqba relates that uh, Talha ibn Ubaidullah, he came from Sham after the Prophet ﷺ was returning from Badr and he spoke to the Prophet ﷺ about his taking part. So the Prophet ﷺ said, don't worry, you get a portion. So you get a portion of the spoils. But he says, وَأَجْرِي يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ My reward, that's what I'm worried about. Like my reward. So the Prophet ﷺ said, وَأَجْرُكْ Yes, your reward as well. So you don't just get the spoils of the war. It's not just about the money, you get the reward, which is very important. 
Then during the Ghazwa to Uhud, this is really when he shines. Subhanallah, you know about this because he did not leave the side of the Prophet He was one of those that stayed with the Prophet when, you know that during the battle of Uhud, initially there was that when anybody who has been for Umrah or Hajj and you go to uh, Mount Uhud area, you, they tell you the story about that small mountain, the large mountain and the small mountain, the 50 arches, right? And uh, so, as you know, initially the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba, they won. But then because of the disarray that was caused by the archers leaving, there was a massive turmoil. Because Khalid bin Walid, who was on the other side at that time, turned around and attacked. And then people, they ran. But there were several people that stayed. There were 11 people that stayed with the Prophet ﷺ. Regardless, they stayed with the Prophet ﷺ. Do you remember that the Prophet himself was wounded during this battle? So what exactly happened here is that when, he's in, when the Prophet is left with this small band of people, there's a large group of the Quraysh that are coming towards them. There's a group of the Quraysh that are coming towards them. So the Prophet said, Man lil qawm, who's going to take care of these people? Immediately Talha stood up and he says, Ana. But the Prophet didn't want him to be the one, so he says, he said, stay in your place. He said, you stay here. Kama ant, stay as you are. So another person stood up and he says, okay, you go. He was killed. Likewise, every time the Prophet didn't ask, who will take care of them? He stood up each time, but the Prophet told him to sit down. And then when another person stood up, he told him to go. Finally, when there was only him left, the Prophet then told him, okay, you go now. Jabir ibn Abdullah anhu then says about this final attack that Talha ibn Ubaidullah did is that he, 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 he fought them like 11 people. Allah gave him some ajeeb strength. And the Prophet was, the Prophet he said, لو قلت بسم الله لرفعتك الملائكة والناس ينظرون This is a narration of Surah Al-Nasai. He said, had you said Bismillah, Allah, Allah, the angels would have lifted you up and people would have been watching you. Right? The way you were doing things, subhanAllah, it would have been even more amazing had you said the Bismillah. That's not all. The way he defended the Prophet ﷺ on that during the Battle of Uhud to such a degree that uh, Malik ibn Zuhair, who was on the other side, he fired an arrow which caught Talha radiallahu anhu in his hands. And literally for the rest of his life, that hand became useless. That hand became, that hand was no longer able, he, was, he wasn't able to use that word, he wasn't able to use that hand anymore. He became paralyzed. He was then, uh, he was also struck in his head. He was struck twice by the Quraysh. One when he was, face on, one when he was turning around and there was a huge blood flow and that's why he says Dirar ibn al-Khattab ibn Mirdas al-Fihri says, I am the one who struck him on that day, so he was very proud of that on that day, or may, may he said that the Prophet as you know, his, his cheeks they became wounded and his, uh, his tooth uh, was wounded as well 
Talha radiallahu anhu was, took so many strikes on that day to defend the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that it was approximately 75 or so strikes they counted on his body. Whether that was piercing of arrows, a striking of a sword or, or, or a spear. He took it like just like a man. 75 strikes, that's what they, they counted. That's why Musa ibn Talha, his son, uh, his, uh, his, his son says that he, Talha came back that day with 75 or, or so strikes. And uh, some were on his forehead and different places. In fact, uh, one of his fingers were lost and so on and so forth. There's numerous, numerous things that happened to him at that day. In fact, he was also the one... You know, the, that day the Prophet ﷺ, just to show everybody else, he had actually put it onto himself two coats of armor. To show the serious, he put on two coats of armor, that, so it weighed him down. He needed to climb up onto a boulder, and he couldn't. So Talha radiallahu anhu, he carried him on his back onto that boulder, and the Prophet ﷺ said, Awjaba Talha. Talha's necessitated it, he's obligated it, meaning he's obligated paradise. That's it. He's obligated the mercy of Allah. He's earned it. He's won when he did that. Finally, after the, the battle you know, ended with, with, uh, with the stalemate as it, as it was, Talha radiallahu anhu, he, he had fallen unconscious. I mean, 75 attacks on your body and wounds from them. He was bleeding profusely and he fell unconscious. So the Prophet ﷺ ordered Abu Bakr al-Siddiq and Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah to go and take care of him and uh, to dress his wounds and so on. So Abu Bakr al-Siddiq himself says that I was one of the first to return uh, from the battlefield and the Prophet ﷺ told me and Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah that you need to take care of your companion, meaning Talha. So um, he was completely exhausted and done, finished. You know, he, he says he was complete. So we first took care of the Prophet ﷺ. Then we came to, uh, to Talha, who was, in, who was in one of those uh, trenches or something. And he had over 70 strikes. Strikes, hits, piercings. And uh, one of his fingers were cut off. So we, look after, we took care of him. The Prophet ﷺ then began to voice his... He, he began to express his pride with Talha because he's stuck by his side all the way through. So he said, لَقَدْ رَأَيْتُنِي The Prophet used to say this afterwards, لَقَدْ رَأَيْتُنِي يَوْمَ أُحُدْ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ قُرْبِي مَخْلُوكٌ غَيْرَ جِبْرِيلٌ عَنْ يَمِينِ وَطَلْحَةٌ عَنْ يَسَارِ The Prophet is saying that I remember, my, I, 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 I can see myself during the day of Uhud, that there was on, on this ground, on this earth, there was no makhluk and creation close to me except Jibreel on my right, the angel, alayhi salam, and Talha on my left. So he remembers that time. And that's when Talha radiallahu anhu used to um, sing this poem, نَحْنُ هُمَاتُ غَالِبٍ وَمَالِكِ نَدُبُّ عَنْ رَسُولِنَا الْمُبَارَكِ نَضْرِبُ عَنْهُ الْقَوْمَ فِي الْمَعَارِكِ ضَرْبَ صِفَاحِ الْقَوْمِ فِي الْمَبَارِكِ So he's talking about how he fought and with the valor that he fought and how he struck people. Anyway, then he took part in all of the other battles, but this one was the significant one, right? And this was a constant mark on him throughout, that th those were his basically uh, battle awards or whatever you want to call them, right? Then eventually when we move on, the Prophet ﷺ passes away, 
he, you know, he takes bay'ah with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. Then Umar radiallahu Umar radiallahu now is on his deathbed. He's been struck as we've covered. So uh, Umar radiallahu anhu makes him one of the committee of six people. Now, I'm not going to go through that whole procedure again because we've done it before. We've spoken about that before as to exactly how that happened. The Prophet Abu Bakr radiallahu had actually clearly told everybody, Umar is your next khalif. So Abu Bakr appointed Umar radiallahu But Umar radiallahu couldn't do that. He said, I can't do that. I can't put one person up. I'm going to give six people to you. And out of them, Allah will choose. You choose between you who that... Because I know these are the six people who the Prophet was satisfied with them when he died. So after Umar radiallahu anhu passed away, they, the six got together. Abdullah ibn Umar was allowed to be with them just to kind of facilitate. He wasn't to be picked, but he was allowed to be facilitating. So what happened then is, <coughs> Abdurrahman ibn Auf, he stepped in. Now he's one, of the, he's one of the six, but he steps in. He says, look, what you should do is I want three of you to give up their, play, their positions to three others. So immediately, Zubair radiallahu anh says, okay, I transfer mine over to Ali radiallahu anh. Right, So I give it to him. Talha radiallahu anh says, I transfer my position over to Uthman radiallahu anh. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, he said, I give it over to Abdurrahman ibn Auf. So now you've got three left. Three have taken themselves out, and these other three are there. So Abdurrahman ibn Auf, he becomes the facilitator. He then has private, private meetings with Uthman radiallahu anh, telling him, look, if Ali radiallahu anhu is to be chosen, then will you do this and so on and so forth? And if you're made, then so on and so on. You know, he gives, takes all these guarantees and assurances from him. He speaks like that to Ali radiallahu anhu as well. And then the next day he comes and he says, okay, it is Uthman radiallahu anhu. And then everybody took bay'ah. So that's how they resolved it. Three, six became three, and then it became two because Abdurrahman al Awfradiyan just acted like the arbiter there. So we've read that story before, but anyway. Then comes, unfortunately, then comes the time at the end of Uthman radiallahu anhu's life, Uthman radiallahu anhu is martyred. As you know the whole story, he's martyred. It says that Talha radiallahu anhu, during that occasion when that, those six people gathered, to choose. And Uthman radiallahu anhu was designated as the next khalif. It says one of the first to give him bay'ah and allegiance was Uthman uh, was Talha radiallahu anhu. Talha gave allegiance to Uthman radiallahu one of the first. Because he gave the bay'ah during that majlis of the shura, of that consultation. Then during the time when the people were attacking Uthman radiallahu anhu in his house, he was one of those that was trying to defend him. But it looks like he thought he didn't do enough. Because when Uthman radiallahu anhu was martyred, he felt very remorseful that he hadn't maybe done enough. Ali radiallahu may have felt that way as well. Because I don't think anybody was expecting that he was going to be killed. Because there's never been something like that before. It's, it was unimaginable. They thought they're just causing a lot of noise and you know, it'll all be sorted out or whatever the case was, whatever they thought. Never thought it was going to end in a murder of a khalif. So whatever the case was, 
he used to say, Talha radiallahu anhu said that, you know, we didn't do enough. So now, we're going to really show what we'll do to avenge this. We're going to really take care of this matter now. So they were really riled up, very emotional, that we need to do something due to the murder of Uthman radiallahu anhu. And then he made a dua, he says, Allahumma khudh li'uthmana minni al-yawma hatta tarda. Oh Allah, you need to make me do whatever it is. I'm doing a very roundabout translation. You, make, you need to take from me today for Uthman radiallahu anhu until you're satisfied. Basically, I'm at your service to do, I want you to employ me to do whatever it is for the sake of Uthman radiallahu anhu until you're fully satisfied. That's his dua to Allah. To be honest, you know, sometimes when you hear about the Rohingya and when you hear about the various different things that are going on around the world, I mean, there are certain reactions that people have. One is, you know, lobbying people, lobbying your politicians and so on. Another one is collecting money and sending it there. Of course, dua and so on, right? Now, alhamdulillah, all of these things happen and these are some good responses. Generally, I try to encourage the dua that, oh Allah, this has happened. Give me the tawfiq to do what I should be doing. Because we don't know what we should, what is the best response. Do they need some moral support? Do they need money? What do they need? Do they want me to go out there and help them distribute the aid? Do we sit back here and do something? We ask Allah to employ us all in the best manner possible for us. So that we can all fulfill our rights. And that's kind of the dua that he's making. Then he gave the bay'ah. To Ali radiallahu anhu. So he didn't, I mean, he gave the bay'ah, it says, right, according to a number of reports, he gave the bay'ah to Ali radiallahu In fact, it is said that, inna He was one of the first to give the bay'ah with his right hand that was actually paralyzed. But it's adab with the right hand, you don't do things with the left hand. Muslims don't like doing things with the Shaitan does things with the left hand. However, then you know the story which I've covered during the, in Ali radiallahu anhu's life story. I actually covered the full story. So I'm not going to go and go over it again. I'll just give you the few highlights. What happened is some months, sometime later, Talha and Zubair radiallahu were coming back from Umrah, from, from Makkah Mukarramah. And they were told that, look, Ali radiallahu doesn't seem to be doing fast enough, finding the killers and the murderers of Uthman radiallahu anhu. So remember, people are really riled up that something horrific has taken place. Something needs to happen. Ali radiallahu anhu was obviously more understanding of the situation that we need to bring about some kind of law and order. Because there's so much confusion. And in that, the murderers are going to be able to hide in plain sight. Because we need to be able to single them out after getting, after getting everybody under control. But they thought that maybe he's not doing it fast enough and quick enough. So they decided to go to Kufa and rally the people there so that they can do something. So anyway, the whole story, they got to Kufa and there's a number of series of talks that took place. They came out with their supporters. Ali radiallahu anh sent people there to try to explain to them and so on and so forth to come to some agreement. Eventually the two forces, they meet and there's some discussions going on at the head of the, the one force is Ali radiallahu anhu with the Muslimin, you know, with the main people from Medina Munawwara. At the head of the other force is they have Talha and Zubair radiallahu anhum. They also have Aisha radiallahu anha on her camel in her howdah, in her howdah, 
right? They all want to avenge the blood of Uthman radiallahu anhu. Now they're getting some agreement going when it falls nighttime and so on and the, 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 the people who had initially caused this whole rebellion in the first place, who had instigated in the first place, they had actually spread, the men of Abdullah ibn Sabah, they'd actually uh, spread through both of these forces. When they learned that there was possibly going to be a peace treaty, like an agreement, they told them to fire at one another. So this start, start, the, the, the mischief makers of this side that were hidden on this side started firing at the other side. The other side doesn't know who's firing at it. They think it's the other force that they've broken their you know, promise or whatever it is. So they start fighting. And unfortunately, a number of people were killed at that time. Aisha radiallahu anha's camel was, uh, was uh, her legs were cut. The, uh, the camel's legs were cut. So then, anyway, eventually it stopped. Ali radiallahu anha did whatever he did. He, he spoke to Zubair and Talha and Zubair radiallahu anha. And he said something to Zubair radiallahu anha. Do you remember, right? I spoke about this in the last one about Zubair radiallahu anha. Do you remember that once we were together with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and the Prophet said that you're going to be arguing with him, you're going to be in dispute with him once uh, at one time, you're going to be in dispute with him, but you're going to be wrong. Right? And uh, Zubair said, yes, yes, I remember. So he just remembered that. So then they started turning away, but he was killed in the way. Talha radiallahu anhu was one of the first to turn away, he was also killed. Because it says that when this skirmish ensued, when this fighting began from both sides, Talha radiallahu anhu still, he didn't join in to fight. He was trying to stop it. He tried to stop it. He took... Uh, he's on his animal. He's on his animal. And he started saying, Ayyuhannas, ansitu, be quiet, be quiet, listen. But nobody was quiet. Because once, when, when the battle comes in, it makes you blind. And when it goes out back, it gives you 20-20 hindsight. That's how battles are. When a fitna comes in, it confuses you. And when it goes back, in fact, the, the one statement is that when... Fitna comes, it comes like a beautiful, attractive lady. And when it turns away, when it ends, it, it's like a, a haggard old woman. Because then you're like all remorseful, like what, the, what did I do? Right? That's just the fitna aspect of it. That's the trial and temptation aspect of it. It confuses you big time. He's trying to call everybody. He says, Uffin, firashun nar, dhubabu tam'in. He's saying all sorts of things that this is not the right thing to do. Ka'ab ibn Sur, he stood up, with him was a mushaf. He started trying to tell people, look, there's a mushaf here, you know, a Quran here, we need to stop. He was killed as well. Then Talha radiallahu an, <coughs> it was his time. He had already been called a shaheed walking on the face of this earth. He was over 60 years old by now. Still quite young, but close to this, the age, the Prophet himself passed away. He gets struck by an arrow in his, close to his knee. And unfortunately, one of the major arteries are severed in this regard. They don't have those same facilities, they didn't have those same facilities we have these days. A major artery means pretty much death. A number of other Sahaba passed away like that as well. So, his blood wouldn't stop. The bleeding wouldn't stop. Eventually, that's what he passes away in the field, he was actually one of, the, one of the first to die. He was one of the first to be killed there, it says. And it says that when, he, when this 
arrow struck him first. He says, Bismillah wa kana amrullahi qadaram maqdura. This affair, it's been predestined and decreed. You can see his tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He doesn't start jumping around in some crazy pain, loses his mind. No, he knows what to say. Allah give us the tawfiq to say the right things and to call on to him when it's most needed. This is where we fail. This is generally where we fail. It's easy to remember him when you're sitting in a masjid. But when you get struck, when you get attacked, when you are in a desperate situation, under pressure, in a tension, that's when we say the wrong things. These people say the right things. So he died in 36 Hijri or so. He's eventually, he was buried in Basra, which was close by. He was buried in Basra in a place called Qantarati Qira. Qantarati Qira was like some bridge or something, it seems. And he was about 60 years old, either 60, 62, or maybe 64. Close enough to the age of the Prophet ﷺ. After he was martyred, after he was martyred, as he's still there, it relates that Ali ibn Abi Talib came past and he saw him. And he began to wipe away the sand, the mud from his face, from his forehead, from his face. He says, Azizun Aliya, this is so weighty on my heart. This is such a burden on me that you've been killed in this path. To see you overthrown like this, on the ground, under the stars. It, it's so difficult for me to see this. And then he says, This is a kind of a, a, a proverbial statement. He says, I, to Allah, do I complain of all my states and affairs. I consign all my affairs to Allah. And then he made a lot of du'a for rahmah on him and says, لَيْتَنِي مُتُّ قَبْلَ هَذَا الْيَوْمِ بِعِشْرِينَ سَنَةً How I wish that I had died 20 years before this day. How I wish I'd died 20 years before this day. So I'd never have to see this. Because Talha was very close to the Prophet He's one of the earliest. They had a lot of respect for people like him. He then cried and saw his companions around him they all cry on Talha radiallahu an. Then it says that it's related that Ali radiallahu an who said that Bashiru qatila talhati bin nar. Bashiru qatila talhati bin nar. Give the glad tidings of the hellfire to the murder of Talha radiallahu an. Talha radiallahu an, as I mentioned, he was buried then in Basra. And Sometime later, short while later, because of the way he was buried, you know, sometimes you're in a battle situation, you bury them quickly. There was a person who started seeing Talha radiallahu anhu in his dream, saying to him, Hawiluni an qabri. Move me away from my grave, turn me away from my grave. The person initially, Fakat adhani al ma. The water is damaging, the water is hurting me, right? Effecting. So, the person, I don't know what he thought of it the first time he saw it, but he saw it constantly for three nights. So Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu was, he told Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu. So they went to look and they actually found that the, 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 the part of his body, the side of his body that was closest to the, the earth, uh, because he was put in tilted, that there was some, it looks like there was some groundwater there. Right? There was a, ground, a lot of groundwater, a lot of moisture, whatever it was. And 
that part had become green. That had part had started becoming green. Now you think, well, he's dead. I mean, it's it decomposed. They get decomposed. No, he's a shaheed though, man. Right? He's a shaheed. So they turned him around from there. They turned him and placed him in a better position. And the person who's doing this, whether that was Abdullah ibn Abbas or the other person, he says, فَكَأَنِّي أَنظُرُ إِلَى الْكَافُورِ بَيْنَ عيني. It's as though I could still see the camphor that was placed between his eyes. لَمْ يتغير. Nothing had changed of his except إِلَّا عَقِيسَتَهُ فَإِنَّهُ مَالَتْ عَنْ مَوْضِعَهَا Except his, he had long hair, so except his hair, which had been moved away from the place that he had originally been put. Other than that, he was intact completely. Because shaheeds, they don't die. وَلَا تَحْسَبَنَّ الَّذِينَ قُتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أَمْوَاتًا بَلْ أَحْيَاءٌ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ يُرْزَقُونَ In fact, Allah says very clearly in the Quran, it's not even a normal hadith. This is in the Quran that they are even given sustenance. They're even provided food. Whatever that food is for them, they provided that. So don't, don't, don't ever think, do not ever think that they're dead. That's quite powerful that is from the Quran. Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib radiallahu anhu says that, um, you know, unfortunately after that time, they, were, they, they always remained until today, unfortunately they always remained some people against and some people for. Ali radiallahu anhu, some people for him, some people against. There's always going to be some people like that, unfortunately. It's sad. So Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib, the great tabi'i, he says that there was a person who used to always speak bad about Ali radiallahu anhu, and Talha and Zubair. He must have been really weird. Because he's not even on one side. He's like against both sides. So, I don't know. This guy didn't like Ali Radiyan, nor did he like uh, Talha and Zubair. Sa'ad ibn Malik used to tell him, stop doing that. This is dangerous. Don't do this. But he says, um, he, he wouldn't agree. He says, La taqa' fi These are my brothers. You should need to stop insulting them like this. But he refused. So one day, this Sa'ad ibn Malik stood up, performed two rakats of prayer, and then he made this dua. He says, Allahumma, in kana muskhitan laka fima yaqul, fa'arini fihi afa, waj'alhu linnasi aya. He said, I'm going to leave it to Allah now. I'm going to consign this matter to Allah. He said, Oh Allah, if in what he is doing, in what he's saying, if he is making you unhappy, if he is invoking your wrath in what he is saying about these people, then show me, demonstrate for me a calamity. And make him a sign for the people so people don't do that again. Like make him an example. One day that person was outside. And this Bactrian camel suddenly just comes through the people, charging through the people, moving them, you know, everybody's moving aside took him, pushed him to the ground, and dragged him until it killed him. This was in front of him. Now people knew that he'd made that dua because it seemed to have made it in front of people. That's why Sayyid al-Musayb says, فَأَنَا رَأَيْتُ النَّاسِ يَتْبَعُونَ سَعْدًا وَيَقُولُونَ That after that I saw people going behind Sa'd, Sa'd saying to him, هَنِيئًا لَكَ يَا أَبَا إِسْحَاقِ هَنِيئًا لَكَ That means... Congratulations to you, O Abu Ishaq. Your dua was answered. Like good riddance to that guy. Now, Basra, 
uh, during during the time of, I believe it must have been during the time of Saddam Hussein, because we're talking about 1973. I'm, I'm not sure if he was in power, it was before Saddam Hussein's time. But the Sunni awqaf there, unfortunately things have really changed in Iraq. It's really a sad case now. But the Wizaratul Awqaf at that time, you know, the endowments ministry, they actually built a masjid close to where he's buried in Basra, right, close to where he's buried. This was in 1973. Unfortunately, in 2006, somebody went and put explosives there and pretty much blew up most of that place. Right? God, I'm not sure. I didn't, I didn't look into, I couldn't find out who did that. But, you know. Now that he's passed away, we're just going to discuss some of his... Remember I told you he was very wealthy, he was a big businessman. But with all of these, like Abdurrahman ibn Auf, you've seen it. With Zubayr, you've seen it. With Uthman, you've seen it. The reason they were probably big businessmen is as one of the biographers say about Abdurrahman ibn Auf, is that the way he became such a wealthy person is that he nurtured his wealth through sadaqah by giving out. Because you know, trees... I, I sometimes listen to the garden program, by the way, on Radio 4. I know it sounds very boring to most people, right? But I actually quite enjoy it. I don't do much gardening myself. I have this crazy ambition that one day maybe I'll retire and do that kind of stuff. But it's supposed to be a very therapeutic way of doing things, right? Gardening. So I listen to the garden show. It happens once a week or twice a week. At John, then they, they, they get these guys, they come and ask questions. So this is one thing that I learned, is that there are certain bushes and trees. In order for you to grow them properly, you have to keep pruning them. Prune, 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 and you'll get a better product. Otherwise, if you don't, then they get overgrown and they don't grow well. So you have to actually keep pruning. That's what it is. That has to be done with wealth as well. You have to prune your wealth, which means you have to give away some. Otherwise, if you don't open the tap and you just keep letting it accumulate, what happens to, a, what happens to the pipe system if you don't open the tap and let the water flow? It gets a bit rusty, doesn't it? See, that's why you should open it up so that it comes and then more will come in. Because it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anyway. Right? So that's how these people dealt with it. We, we ask Allah for tawfiq to do this as well. Right? So anyway, كَانَ طَلْحَةُ ذُو ثَرَائِن His, ajib, his everyday proceed, his everyday income or revenue, everyday taking, was a million dirhams. He had a lot of assets. A million dirhams a day was his taking. Now, he'd probably need several, I mean, storage centers for that. But no, he didn't. Two, at least two of his nine wives over the course of his life have related stories where at night time he, uh, he would be given his, uh, maybe a bit late or something, he'd, he'd be given his income for that day or whatever, and he'd like, oh no, I can't keep this in the house. It needs to go somewhere. And he's like, where should I give it now? Everybody's asleep or whatever. He said, okay, first thing in the morning, we need to get rid of this. This comes from at least two of his wives, this incident. So all this money is coming in, it's just like he's, he's just racking up the reward by filtering it through him. Right? So anyway, it says that his income from Iraq was 400,000. His income from Sarat, another area, was approximately 10,000 dinars, gold pieces these are. And in, from A'rad, he had a number of other incomes. When he died, he left behind approximately he left behind approximately 2.2 million 
dirhams. 2.2 million dirhams was what he left behind. Along with 200,000 gold dinar. So dirhams are silver. 200,000 gold dinars. 300, I don't know, uh, bags of gold or some kind of cases of gold. And when his lands, his estates were valued, they were valued at 30 million. No, yes, 30 million dirhams. But he was well known for his generosity, his benevolence, his open-heartedness, his spending, his sadaqat. One of his wives, whose name is Su'da bintu Auf, Su'da bintu Auf, she says, Talha, uh, Talha's income a day was, uh, every day, uh, from what she saw, was about at least a thousand, right? which is very less compared to when you take everything into consideration. And uh, he was called Talha al-Fayyad. Fayyad, Fayyad, the one from whom things emanate. So the one who's pushing out a lot. Talha, the great gener generous one. In one day, he has given sadaqah of 100,000 just like that. That's his wife saying. In fact, you know, during the battle of Badr, there were a number of people that were taken prisoner and then they had to actually pay for their ransom, for their release. He paid for at least 10 of them to be released in the battle of Badr. He paid for 10 people to be released during the battle of Badr. On one occasion, he gave the sadaqah of an entire orchard that he just purchased for 700,000. He purchased it for 700,000 then he gave it in sadaqah. It's like crazy stuff. Like You're just like, what is going on here? I wish we could do something like this. Even a fraction of it. Then it says that during the expedition of the Qarad, not a very well-known one, but during the expedition of the Qarad, or it's called Ghazwatul Ghaba, the jungle uh, expedition, which happened in the seventh year of Hijrah, that is the time when he did what Uthman did earlier. He purchased a well and he fed everybody, he gave everybody water from that well. The Prophet ﷺ said, Anta Talhatul Fayyad. You are that extremely generous Talha. He then sold another land of his for about 700,000. And that's the time when at night he was like, what do I do with this money? Right? Makhafa. He had a fear of that wealth sitting in his, uh, sitting in his home. And uh, before the morning came, he'd, he'd, he'd managed to distribute it. He would not leave anybody from his general tribe. You know, the Banu Taim, massive tribe. Abu Bakr al tribe. There were nobody that he would leave from that tribe in poverty. He would always sustain all of them. Right? That's amazing because that's your first right, your responsibility. And uh, in fact, even afterwards, after the Prophet uh, departed this world, he, or maybe even before that, he used to send to Aisha radiallahu anha with 4,000 4, dirhams every time, every season when his income would come. For that particular season, he would send a 10,000. And. Uh, there was another person in the Banu Taim who had a big debt of 30,000. 30, he paid for him. Eventually, I mean, this is the norm among the Sahaba. And uh, if this could become a better tradition among us, there'd be a lot less misery in this world. And there'd be a lot less miserable women. Because unfortunately, our communities do not look favorably on divorced women. 
And unfortunately, there's so many that are in... I mean, I know them pers- some of them personally, they're in huge levels of depression. It's just really sad that there's that stigma that's attached. His wives, he had about nine throughout his life altogether. I mean, he had four at once in some cases. But otherwise, Ibn Sakan says that, look at this now. This is another very interesting point about him. He says that out of those nine wives or so that he had, four of those that he married were all sisters of wives of the Prophet ﷺ. He managed to get the sisters of four of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. Right? So the first one is Ummu Kulthum bintu Abi Bakr. Abu Bakr daughter, Ummu Kulthum, sister of Aisha radiallahu anha. So that's one wife sister. Hamana bintu Jahash, very well known. Sister of Zainab bintu Jahash. Cousin, she's actually a cousin, sister of the Prophet as well. Fari'ah bintu Abi Sufyan. Whose sister is she? Sorry? She's, she's actually the sister of Ummu Habiba. She's the sister of Ummu Habiba, the daughter of Hind. Right? Ummu Habiba radiallahu anha. Right? Abu Sufyan's daughter. And then Ruqayya bint Abi Umayya. Ruqayya bintu Abi Umayya. Whose sister is she? It's Ummu Salama radiallahu anha. So he's got four wives, sisters. Now, I'm not going to go through the names of all of his other wives because that's besides the point. But there's one of them who's very interesting. Right? I find this story quite amazing. Her name was Ummu Aban. Bintu Utba ibn Rabi'a. She is actually the maternal aunt of Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. So that means Abu, Sufi, Abu Sufyan's sister-in-law, Hind's sister. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know Hind, the one who initially chewed up Hamza radiallahu anhu's heart, but later became Muslim and said to the Prophet, your household now is the most beloved to me. And the Prophet said, that will only increase now, right? Her sister is... Uh, is, is this Ummu Aban, so she's Muawiyah's auntie. She was married to Aban ibn Sa'id ibn al-As. He died in the, in, in the, in the battle of Ajnadin. He battled, that, that was in later on, not prior to Prophet later on. He died in the battle of Ajnadin. It's a famous battle. She came back to Medina Munawwara, and now look what happened. She's just come back to Medina Munawwara, Iddat finished, whatever. She gets a proposal from Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu She gets a proposal from Ali ibn Abi Talib, Zubair ibn al-Awam, Talha ibn Ubaidillah, and she chooses Talha. So from him, from her, he gets Ishaq, Ya'qub, and Ismail. But let me tell you the story. Musa ibn Talha tells the story better. He's, he's the son of Talha radiallahu He says, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, he proposed to Ummu Aban bint Utba ibn Rabi'a, and she refused. And somebody asked her, like, why not? Umar? Like, why not? So he says, In dakhala dakhala bibas, wa in kharaja kharaja bibas, kad adhalahu amrun akhir, amru akhiratihi al amri dunya, ka'annahu yanzuru ila rabbihi bi'ayni. 
He enters forcefully, he leaves forcefully, with force, right? And his, his akhirah, his focus on the akhirah, has actually made him negligent of his dunyawi aspects. That's her perspective. It is as though he is looking at his Lord with his eyes. So she's praising him. But he says, he's not for me. Then after that, Zubayr ibn al-Awam proposes to her, radiallahu anhu. Now he's got money, right? He's got everything. You've, you've, read, you know, you've heard his story. Then Ali radiallahu anhu, he proposes. So he says, no again. Then said a number of other things, and then Talha radiallahu anhu comes along, and he proposes to her, and she said, yes, Zawji haqqan, this is, this is really my husband. Right? How? So then she says, إِنَّهُ عَارِفَةً إِنِّي عَارِفَةٌ إِنِّي عَارِفَةٌ بِخَلَائِقِهِ I am well aware of his akhlaq, his character and his conduct. Now look at, I mean, if your wives, if our wives can say this about, إِنْ دَخَلَ دَخَلَ دَحَّاكًا When he enters, he enters with a smile. No, he enters laughing. When he enters the house, he comes, he's laughing. وَإِنْ خَرَجَ خَرَجَ بَسَّامًا When he leaves, he leaves smiling. Now this tells us how husbands are supposed to be, right? إِنْ سَأَلْتُ أَعْطَى If I ask, he gives me. وَإِنْ سَكَتُ إِبْتَدَأَ And if I am silent, he will start talking. He won't give me the silent treatment as well. You know, wives sometimes do that, they don't talk to you. So you don't talk to them. And then it just becomes more messed up. So no, if I stay silent... He will talk to me. وَإِنْ عَمِلْتُ شَكَرَ If I do some good thing, if I do any work, he's thankful, he's grateful. وَإِنْ أَذْنَبْتُ غَفَرَ If I make a mistake, he's forgiving. When they got married, and uh, they'd consummated the marriage and everything, Ali radiallahu anhu, it looks like he was quite taken aback by this whole thing, he was quite curious about this whole situation. So this is very interesting. He goes to Talha, radiallahu anhu. He says, Abu Muhammad, can you, you know, give me permission? I want to speak to your wife. Right? If you give me, he says basically, in adhintali an ukallima umma aban. Like, you know, can I speak to ummu aban? He says, yeah, go and speak to her. So he said he took hold of the curtain. So they had a, you know, they had a segregation, obviously. He took hold of the curtain. And he said, As-salamu alayki ya gharirata nafsiha. Qalat wa alayka as-salam. قَالَ خَطَبَكَ أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ So this is during Umar the time. He gave you a proposal. سَيِّدُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ He's the leader of the Muslimin. And you refused him. He says, yeah, that, that happened. Then Zubair, the cousin, the, the son of his aunt, uh, of the aunt of the Prophet ﷺ, he gave you a proposal. He's the Hawari of the Prophet ﷺ. You refused him as well. He said, yes, that happened as well. I did that. I propose to you, and I've got this special uh, relationship and closeness, family closeness with the Prophet He said, yes, exactly that happened. Then Ali radiallahu anhu just said, أَمَا وَاللَّهِ لَقَدْ تَزَوَّجْتَ أَحْسَنَهَا وَجْهًا أَحْسَنَنَا وَجْهًا وَأَبْذَلَنَا كَفًا يُعْتِي هَكَذَا وَهَكَذَا And then he, he just, he said, he says, you have married the best of us, the most handsome of us, and the one who has the most open palm, open hands, the one who gives like this and like this. Basically saying that he's, uh, mashallah, he spends. So this tells us a number of qualities that a husband should have. Don't be tight to your wife, right? 
I don't know, you know, to be honest, I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but do you know the story of Hind and Abu Sufyan? Hind, after they became Muslim, they came to the Prophet ﷺ and she said, you know, my husband, he's tight. He doesn't spend on me. He doesn't give me enough money. Can I just take from him like that? So the Prophet ﷺ said, yeah, only as much as you need for the family you can take. Right? You can take that because it's your right. He's not giving it, just take it. Right? So... Uh, I'm not giving big ideas here. I mean, you need to, you know, right? So make, just make sure you spend on your wives. I mean, make sure you give them some money, right? But anyway, so maybe she was like, okay, I need to find somebody who's not like that. Maybe that was one of the things. Wallahu alam. Allah, because she's the sister of Hind. Her sister's gone through that during the time of the Prophet. So sometimes, you know, sisters do learn from one another. Wallahu alam. But anyway, Talha radiallahu's children, uh, he ended up, he had 11 boys and 4 girls. Right? Over the course of all of those wives, he had 11 boys, 4 girls. And one thing very particular about him is that he used to call all of his sons with the names of, it looks like the Bani Israel names, you know, the, the, the prophet names of the Bani Israel. So, well, first one was Muhammad. So he had to give that one. Then Imran. Right? So he's not a prophet, but he's from the Bani Israel. Uh, Musa, Ya'qub, Ismail, Ishaq, Zakariyah, Yusuf, Yahya, Isa, and Saleh. These were not very, I mean, if you look at the Sahaba, and you don't really see these names. But not among the Sahaba. Have you noticed? There's no Sahaba, Zakariya radiallahu anhu, Yusuf radiallahu anhu, Yahya radiallahu anhu, Isa radiallahu anhu, Saleh radiallahu anhu. Have you heard of them? Ismail radiallahu anhu, Yaqub. But later they proliferate. Among the Sahaba you don't see it. Musa radiallahu anhu. No, right? Imran radiallahu anhu. But then you see them later, you see them among the narrators and so on. So it looks like there wasn't a tradition, but after the Qur'an was revealed, then, then afterwards it probably started. Final few points about Abu Uthman al-Nahdi. He mentions that, you know, during some of those battles, the only people that were left, especially during the Battle of Uhud, the only people that were left with the Prophet ﷺ was Talha and Sa'ad. Right? Then... Musa ibn Talha says that once Talha ibn Ubaidillah said, I went to visit Muawiyah radiallahu an. And uh, Muawiyah radiallahu an said, should I give you some glad tidings? He's telling Talha himself radiallahu an, should I give you some glad tidings? I heard the Prophet sallallahu saying that Talha is mimman qada nahbahu. Talha, you know in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, some of, those are the, some of them are those who have fulfilled their covenant with Allah. And Muawiyah is t- telling him that you're one of those I've heard about saying that he is the one who's full. Because I mean, look at what he did with the Prophet I mean, he's fulfilled it, no doubt about it. The companions of the Prophet they would be a bit afraid to ask the Prophet some certain questions. So once there was a Arabi, a desert Arab, and they told him to ask the Prophet can you tell us who is one of those who've actually fulfilled his covenant as the Quran says, as Allah says in the Quran, right? So the, the Arabi asked him, and the Prophet ﷺ refused to respond first. Then he asked him again, he refused, he refused. And then after that, he says that, Talha says that once I would just looked into the door of the masjid, and I had green clothing on. When the Prophet ﷺ saw me, he said, where's that person who was asking about man qada nahbahu? So the person said, it's me, Ya Rasulullah. Or oh, actually, this is that same Arabi, it seems, saying that. So the Prophet ﷺ said, no, 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 it was, uh, it, it, he called the Arabi. And that desert Arab, 
and when the person called him and I was there, the Prophet ﷺ told me, uh, told him that this is one of those mimman qada nahu fulfill their covenant and promise with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to inspire us, not just with these words, but to inspire us with their actions, with the way they dealt with things, with their zeal, with their level of iman, with their trust and tawakkul in Allah, with their wealth and their generosity, right, to spend it in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and with the barakah that they had in their lives, and especially the maqam that they have in the hereafter, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us of that as well, allow us to follow in their footsteps and inspire us and our progeny until the day of judgment with them, وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين. سست وشوت دعوة اللهم أنت السلام ومنك السلام تبارك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين يا حي يا قيوم برحمتك نستغيث يا حنان يا منان لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إن كنا من الظالمين سبحان الله العلي الأعلى الوهاب Ya Wahhab, O oh Allah, we ask you for forgiveness, we ask you for complete purity, we ask you for your love, we ask you to protect us, we ask you to protect our generations to come. We ask that you make us of those who establish the prayer and establish the other ahkam and the commands. And we make us of those who have intense love for you, who have intense iman, and those as Allah, as you've said in the Quran, that the people who our believers, they are the most intense in your love. O oh Allah, make us truly from among them. O oh Allah, we are asked to be inspired by these great people and to follow in their footsteps and to be in the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa in the hereafter. O oh Allah, bless all of those who have organized this program, those who have attended, those who have listened, those who have facilitated. Oh Allah, do not allow any of us to be turned without barakah and blessing from this. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifuna wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil